Now, uh, if you are here this morning, if you're watching, um, whether you're a guest or you're here week in and week out, if you have ever felt as though you were clenching to faith, as if life itself was trying to pry it out of your hands, if you can relate to that, if you've ever felt like you were holding on to faith and life itself was trying to jerk it out of your hands, then you can relate to the history of God's people. You, you can relate to the history of the Jewish people, to Israel. If there's ever been a moment or a season in your life when you were clinging to hope, as if life itself was trying to crowd it out of your hand, the circumstances of your life were trying to drive it out of your hands, then you can relate to the history of God's people. If you've ever had an unanswered prayer that began to undermine your confidence in God, your belief in God, your trust in God, then you can relate to the history of God's people. If personal pain, your personal pain, if your personal pain has ever brought you to a moment or a season that made you feel that you had been forgotten by God or forsaken by God, then you too can relate to the history of God's people. If your personal disappointment, disappointment in you, disappointment in life, disappointment at someone else, if your disappointment ever left you questioning God's goodness, then you can relate to the history of the Jewish people. You can relate to the history of God's people, Israel. Now, when it comes to Israel, Israel's past started with a promise and their future hinged on that promise. Israel's past began with a promise about their future. That's where their story begins. God made a promise to a guy by the name of Abraham and said, one of your descendants is going to bless the entire world. God promised Abraham one day, you're gonna have a family that's gonna become a nation, that's gonna become a kingdom, that's one day gonna bless the entire world. Now that promise, which is center stage all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is telling the story of God's promise to Abraham. That promise that God made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, it was not a promise, it was not an assurance of clear skies and easy sailing. God's promise to Abraham and to the people of Abraham, his descendants, it was not a promise of being insulated from the inevitabilities of life, from the pain and the disappointment of life. Abraham's family did become a nation, but that nation knew the pain of slavery. That nation knew the pain of defeat. That nation did become a kingdom, but they knew the pain of civil war. They also knew the pain of being carried off into captivity and seeing their homeland lie in ruins. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, God's people, they experienced some of the hardest things that life can throw at anybody. I mean, you read through the Old Testament, I mean, everything, everything and the kitchen sink got through at the people of God. And we read their story in the Old Testament. 1,600 years after God promised Abraham that his family would become a nation and the nation would become a kingdom that would bless the world, 1,600 years later, we find Israel, God's people. They're a conquered people without a king of their own, without a kingdom of their own. They're not even sure if they have a future of their own. They are a puppet nation. They have been the punching bag of one world empire after the other. A, a lot of them, many of them, have let go of faith, have let go of hope, but there's a few of them 
who are still clinging and clenching to faith and hope in the face of life, in the face of their life. In their past, they've got generations of unanswered prayers. Generations of unanswered prayers. Life has been hard to their moms and dads and their grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers. They're beginning to wonder, have they been forgotten? They're beginning to wonder, has God ignored, neglected, broken his promises? And then God sends a prophet. Coincidentally, it'll end up being the last prophet of the Old Testament. And the last prophet of the Old Testament shows up with a promise. It will be the last promise of the Old Testament. And this is what we find in the book of Malachi. The prophet says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He, this prophet that I will send, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. This was a promise that one day God would send a prophet the last prophet that would prepare the world for the descendant of Abraham that would show up and bless the world. That there would be a prophet sometime in the future that would step onto the scene, that would prepare the people of God for the arrival of the Messiah. And this promise that comes at the conclusion of the Old Testament, it was God's way, I think, of reminding his people, I have, for not, I have not forgotten my promises and I've not forgotten my people. And after Malachi said these words, the prophets of God, they laid down their pen. They stepped off the stage because God was preparing to go silent for the next four centuries. But before God would go silent, before heaven would go quiet, God wanted them to not forget. God wanted them to know. And perhaps maybe this Christmas, God wanted you to know. And God wanted me to know and wanted us all to be reminded, encouraged that God has not forgotten his promises and God has not forgotten you. Maybe that's the very reason that God has you here today. Maybe that's the very reason that you're listening today, that you need to hear one last time because you are clinging and clenching to faith and to hope that God has not forgotten his promises, not a single one of them. And God has not forgotten you. Now, last week we kicked off the series that we're calling Wish Book. Because we're talking about the fact that when the arrival of the Christmas wish book came when we were children, it marked the beginning of the Christmas season. It, it marked the beginning of the reminder that Christmas is coming. Christmas is on its way. And when we got the Christmas book, you know, when we got the wish book and we began to look through all the gifts and all the things, it, it was a way of anticipating what was sure to come. And what was sure to come was Christmas. And so this sense of anticipation, it was kickstarted by this wish book that showed up in the mail. And as we thumbed our way through it, all of a sudden we found ourselves anticipating Christmas that was on the way. Now, last week we talked about that not only is anticipation such a big part of Christmas, but anticipation is such an important thing for all of us to live our lives with. And anticipation, it's simply confidence that whatever happens in the future will be good and that it will be worthwhile. That's what anticipation is. Now, I wanna slow down for just a moment. I want you to think about that. Living life with anticipation is believing with confidence that whatever happens and whatever is a loaded word, that whatever happens in the future, it will be good and it will be worthwhile. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to live life that way. 
what it would be like to wake up every day that way or lay your head down at the end of every day that way. Imagine how it would affect the way that you see things, the way that you hear things, the way that you react to things, the way that you face things, endure things, experience things. If you wholeheartedly had confidence, believing that whatever was to come, that it would be good and that it would be worthwhile. Now within the Christian faith, we call that a life of hope. We call that a lifestyle of hope. Living life with a confident expectation, a confident anticipation that whatever happens in the future, it will be worth it. It will be worth the wait. It will be worth the time. It will be worth the pain. It will be worth the discomfort. It will one day be worth it all. Because whatever will come, it will be good and it will be worth wow. Now, what we celebrate at Christmas time, I want you to think about this. Whatever, what we celebrate at Christmas time was once upon a time just a promise. Once upon a time, it was just a promise of something that would happen, that ultimately did happen, that we look back on and celebrate. But once upon a time, Christmas was just a promise. And when God made that promise to Abraham, it marked the beginning of wishing and waiting, wishing and waiting and anticipation. Every generation eagerly awaiting for that descendant of Abraham to show up that, in, that would in some way bless the world, that would in some way save the world. And this promise was passed from one generation to another, to another, to another. Now, as one generation would die off without seeing the promise, many in that generation and many in the next generation, they begin to let go of faith. They begin to let go of hope because surely if this was going to happen, it would have happened already. Surely God, if there was really such a thing as this promise, surely somewhere along the way, God would have already kept this promise. And so for many who let go of faith and who let go of hope, the future was dreaded, not welcomed. The future was dreaded, it was not invited. There was no anticipation of whatever would come would be good or worthwhile. And that was the consensus for a lot of the people in the generations at the close of the Old Testament. And it was certainly a large portion of people on the opening pages of the New Testament, a group of people clinging and clenching to faith and hope. And so Luke, Luke begins his story of Christmas, not with a couple finding out that they are pregnant, but with a couple that has struggled all of their life to get pregnant. And this is how Luke begins it. He says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, that's where he starts, before singing angels, before the arrival of shepherds, before innkeepers, before manger beds or peace on earth. Luke begins with a king by the name of Herod. Now this is just not some boring, benign historical reference that we're supposed to just read over quickly and just gloss over and not really think about. Anybody in Luke's immediate audience, when they saw the phrase in the time of Herod, king of Judea, they would have understood exactly what Luke was saying without him having to say it with a lot of words. That this was Luke's way of saying, in the days when Herod was king, it was the darkest of days. It was the hardest of days. It was the most fearful of days. It was the most dreaded of days. But Luke is making the point that even then, even then, God was up to something. Even then, God was at work. Now. Most of us recognize Herod as the one who killed the baby boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that part of the Christmas story that Matthew records, we think, who in the world would do such a thing? Is that really believable? 
Is that really conceivable that a leader in the first century, because we know Herod was a historical figure. He is certified historical fact. But is it really reasonable to believe that somebody like Herod would kill all the baby boys in and around Jerusalem? Well, if you know Herod, if you know anything about what history records about Herod, it's not far-fetched. It's par for the course. Herod's dad was a guy by the name of Antipater, who it's a great story. I'm not gonna take time to tell you, but he, he was great friends. Herod's dad, Antipater, was friends with Julius Caesar. And once upon a time, Antipater was able to save Julius Caesar's back in the middle of a battle when he got his back in a corner. And so Antipater showed up and, and was able to get him out of trouble. And so Julius Caesar basically lived the rest of his life thinking, I owe Herod. I owe him just about anything he could ask for. And so Antipater asked if he could be made governor of Syria. And he was named governor of Syria. Eventually he did what most dads try to do. He tries to set his kids up for success. So when he got towards the end of his career, he made sure that his son Herod inherited his position as governor of Syria with the right to collect taxes. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, the Roman Senate declared Herod not only governor of Judea, but gave him a promotion. They declared him to be king of Judea. Now, something about Herod, he had stopped at nothing to get this title. He, he had done anything he had to do to get the title king of the Jews or king of Judea. Uh, he was a savvy politician, maybe one of the best politicians in that particular era of history. He was ruthless. He was power hungry, he was bloodthirsty, and seemingly without a conscience at all. Uh, history tells us that once upon a time, he killed 45 members of the 70 member Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin. He just wiped basically the whole high court out because he was upset. History says that he killed two thirds of the rabbis during his reign, two thirds of them. He killed his wife, he killed his mother-in-law, he killed his brother-in-law, who was the high priest at the time. He killed three of his own sons. This guy was willing to do whatever it took to protect his power, to protect his throne. Matter of fact, a fifth century uh, historian, Macrobius, this is what he says about Herod. He said, when Caesar Augustus heard that Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered boys in Syria under the age of two years to be put to death, and that the king's son was among those killed. He said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And Luke says, in the days when Herod was king, this unpredictable tyrant, when politics was off the rail, when this super impulsive, bloodthirsty guy was sitting on the throne, when it seemed as though things couldn't get worse, things couldn't get darker, Luke's point is, even then, God was at work. That when it seemed like God was doing no good thing, God was moving. And when it seemed as though God had forgotten his promise and his people, God had been working to keep his promise for the sake of his people. And against this dreary backdrop, he introduces us to a couple, a priest and his wife. He says, there in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, this is a Jerusalem power couple. Uh, this is a couple who had one of the most important things that you could have at that particular time and place, a pedigree. 
And they had a pedigree that was a priestly pedigree. And both of them could trace back their family tree all the way back to the first high priest of Israel, the brother of Moses, Aaron himself. So these are two people, power couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. They are religious aristocracy in the first century in many ways. They're at the center of what is most religious and what is most political. They are at the heart of what's going on in and around the temple. They know all the power players. They know all the politicians. They know all the scuttlebutt that's going on on the streets of Jerusalem. They're in the middle of it all. And Luke says, in the middle of all of these dark days, here's a priest and his wife, a priest and his wife. And he says, let me tell you about them. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. I mean, these were good folks. This was a good guy and this was a good woman. In other words, here's two people who, re who refused to relinquish or forfeit their faith and their hope. They refused to relinquish and forfeit their faith and hope in the face of everything that was going on in their day. As difficult as it was, as bloody as it was, as uncomfortable and as unwanted and as uninvited as what it was, they refused to let go of their faith and hope. They were pleasing in the sight of God. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're, they're like you, they're like me, they're imperfect, but they're doing their best to do the right thing. And they're doing the right thing because they believe that doing the right thing is the best thing. And they're living their life for an audience of one. They're not trying to please people. They're not trying to gain a reputation in the eyes of people. They're living their lives for the motivation of pleasing God. And when that's our motivation, that trumps all motivations, it will impact and influence the way that we live our lives. When you decide that you're gonna stop living for the approval of everybody else, and I'm gonna stop living for the approval of everybody else, and the one person that I'm gonna care most about is God, my heavenly Father, it begins to change the way that we see our lives, the way that we live our lives. These are two people who have true faith. They're doing their best to observe all the Lord's commands. We don't even wanna memorize all the Lord's commands, much less live by the Lord's commands. I mean, they have a true faith. They're not going through the emotions. This is just not a job. This is just not a vocation. This is real to them. And this is a couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who are pleasing in the eyes of God and they're doing all they can to observe all the commandments of God. This is a couple, this is a family where we would anticipate that everything must be going well for them. Life must be good for them because isn't it, isn't that what happens when your life pleases God? That when your life and my life, when, when we please God, then the blessings of the answered prayer, they follow? Isn't it some type of guarantee? Isn't it some type of promise that when your ways please God, that when you do what is right and you do what is best, that in some way God is better to you when you live your life that way? That life seemingly becomes better for you when you decide to live life this way, that everything just falls in place for you when you decide to live life like Zachariah and Elizabeth. Luke says, let me tell you about them. They were pleasing in the eyes of God. They were doing all they could to obey and do the right thing. Good people, but they were childless. This was their biggest unanswered prayer, I imagine. 
This was the thing that they had shed tears over. This is the thing that broke their heart. This is the thing that they had begged God about year after year after year after year. But even though they had an unanswered prayer, even though their unanswered prayer was maybe one of the most important things in their heart, they refused to relinquish their faith in God. They refused to forfeit their hope in a God who keeps his promises. And here's a couple, they were childless. They had lived their lives not seeing their obedience as a means to an end, as a lot of Christians like to think of. I'm gonna obey God so that. I'm gonna obey God so that God is good to me or God is better to me or God will protect me or God will put you know those shrubs around me and hedge me in. That God's gonna keep the enemy at bay. I'm gonna be good and obedient because when you're good and you're obedient, things, things are just easier that way. And some of us, the reason we got disillusioned with faith is because when we tried to do it right, when we tried to do it the good way, the best way, we found out that all hell broke loose. And we didn't know what the problem was because somebody somewhere had sold us a false bill of goods. But here's a, here's a couple, they're, they're doing all the things, they're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and their biggest prayer is unanswered. And yet, they chose to trust and obey, even though they had an unanswered prayer. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit is because for, for many people, for some people at least, an unanswered prayer begins to undermine faith if we allow it to. Your unanswered prayer that thing that has broke your heart, that thing that you've begged God about, that thing that is most important, the thing that you cherish, that you've been praying about, and there's been no answer. Sometimes if we allow it, it can begin to undermine our faith. In other words, unanswered prayers often lead to an unanchored faith. Sometimes when our prayers go unanswered, somehow it releases the anchoring of our faith and we just begin to drift. And when we drift, we never drift in a good direction. We drift away. For some people, when they have an unanswered prayer, they begin to feel and believe that God is uncaring, that their prayers are going unheard. For some, they take it even a step further, and in their unanswered prayers, they believe that maybe God doesn't even exist. For some people, when the unanswered prayer is significant enough, it begins to make us angry. It causes us to be resentful. It causes us to be bitter towards God. It discourages us. It leaves us disillusioned with life and with ourselves and with faith and with God and with all the things. See, unanswered prayers often become the source of our unresolved pain. We're carrying it around and we don't even know about it. It's a wound that we feel like God has inflicted us with or that life has inflicted us with. Our unanswered prayer becomes unresolved pain. We refuse to confront it. We refuse to acknowledge it. We refuse to surface it and bring it to the light. And we wonder why we've been so angry and resentful and resistant toward God and towards the church and towards truth and towards the scriptures. And we wonder where's all that coming from? And maybe it's unresolved pain that's been there beneath the surface because of an unanswered prayer once upon a time. Or maybe once upon a now. 
that it seems as though God has been silent about and you've tried everything you know to try. You've tried to muster all the faith that you can muster, pray all the prayers that you can pray and nothing has shifted, nothing has changed and you carry it around and now you're angry and you're bitter and you're resentful. And for some of you, it's made you angry, bitter and resentful towards everyone, just not God. And you've refused to deal with it and you've refused to confront it and you have no idea where it comes from. But maybe for a few, when you go back to that moment that you were disappointed with God, where you felt like God let you down, where God didn't show up when you thought he was supposed to, you prayed and it didn't happen. The healing didn't happen. You didn't get the job. That person that got on your nerves got the job. That struggle you've been dealing with, that thing you can't shake, it's not gotten better, it's gotten worse. And you, you can't reconcile it all because of the things that you heard, the things that you were taught. But Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were there. They knew that season of life. And they chose to wake up every single day and believe that God could be trusted in spite of it all in spite of an, an, of an unanswered prayer. He says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. In a world of no biology and bad theology, everyone blamed the woman when there was barrenness, when there was childlessness. Both though, Luke said, as a medical doctor, he said, let's just put on the chart. <laughs> both were very old. Barrenness in that culture Here's some of the bad theology. Barrenness was considered God's signal that he's displeased with you. And so it became, it became this shameful thing to not be able to have children. To not be able to have children meant that some way you had a secret sin or there was something that was wrong about you that God had opposed you in this way. And so people who knew Zachariah and Elizabeth, remember what Luke said, in God's eyes, they were pleasing. But behind their back, perhaps their friends, their coworkers were saying, I wonder what it is about them that is so displeasing to God. So they were without a child. And here's this old couple without a child in the opening pages of the New Testament, which sounds a lot like an echoing that's been left over from the story that we talked about last week, Abraham and Sarah from the opening pages of Genesis. So there's some similarities in this story. And so Luke just tells it to us. He says, once when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, there were 24 different orders of priests in Zechariah's day. Some people estimate that there were as many as 20,000 priests. So there was just this by chance, they cast lots, you know, they rolled some dice, you know, you know, whoever had, you know, the tall straw, whatever they did, they decided that through the casting of lots, that on that particular day, it came upon Zechariah to go into the holy place and to work at the altar of incense and to trim, trim the wicks of the menorah. It was a once in a lifetime moment 
20,000 priests, you may never get the opportunity to go into the holy place. This was a once in a lifetime moment for Zechariah. This was a break of a lifetime. This was monumental. And so he's in there, he's doing his priestly responsibilities, his priestly job, he's trimming the wick, he's, he's working the altar of incense. He's right in the middle of his career making moment. And in the middle of it all, it says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And after 400 years of silence, on the back end of Malachi's promise, his prophecy, God, after 400 years, is about to break through the silence. And after 400 years of silence, people equated God's silence with God's absence, but God is about to teach us all a very important lesson. God is about to say, even when I'm silent, don't mistake that for me being absent. Because even when I'm silent, even when you can't hear me, and even when you can't see me, I am present, I am there, I am moving, I am working. I have been working ever since Malachi opened up his mouth. I have been working toward this moment. It says, when Zechariah saw him, <laughs> he was startled and he was gripped with fear. So why? Because that's what you do when you see an angel. And what I love about Luke's gospel, and this is just a side note for how I read, but in, what I love about Luke's gospel is that we find, and I know for some people it's kind of hard to believe all of this, all of this supernatural stuff, but here's something to think about. This is, this is not written like a fairy tale. This is not written in, in that type of fable-like literature. Th this is Luke telling a story, extraordinary events wrapped in ordinary occurrences extraordinary events, but it's all yet so very ordinary, so very human. An angel shows up and instead of writing, and Zachariah said, I've been waiting for you. I've been expecting you. No, he wet his pants maybe. I'm not sure. He, he lost his senses. Angels were terrifying. Matter of fact, there's a story in the Old Testament. It's kind of, kind of crazy, but an angel wiped out 185,000 troops of Israel's enemy. One angel. They are terrifying, they're not cuddly. If you ever hear somebody say, oh, an angel appeared to me in my bedroom and I felt this warm, this warm feeling and I felt so at peace. Liar, liar, your pants are on fire. That's not an angel that we meet in the Bible. Are you serious? What are you talking about? Those angels, they freak you out. They weren't into creating safe spaces. That's not, that's not how they, that, they didn't roll that way. I mean, they just showed up and you freaked out and you know, chips fall where they may. Zechariah just lost his senses. He says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. I love that. Angels probably get tired of saying that. Every time they have to show up, it's like they have to go off script. Okay, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know you are. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And sometimes that's all we need to hear, isn't it? Sometimes that's all we would like to hear. We don't even need to know that our prayers are gonna be answered. For some of us, we just like to know our, our prayers are being heard because then we'll know that God cares. Then we'll know that God hears and then we'll know that God's there. Zechariah, you've been praying for decades and God has heard your prayer. I know it seemed like he didn't. I, I, know, that, I know it didn't feel like he had, but God has heard your prayer. Your, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're gonna name him John. He will be a joy and a delight 
to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And now here's the echo of what had become a forgotten promise that Malachi had spoken 400 years before. That a prophet like Elijah would show up and prepare the world for the coming of the Lord. Zechariah, your son John is going to be born to prepare the world for the Messiah. Zechariah, what you didn't know is Christmas, it's coming. Christmas is near and your son is gonna be the opening act to the show of a lifetime. <laughs> and we would expect if this wasn't true that Zechariah would be like, in Jesus' name I've received that promise since I first prayed that prayer. I've been expecting this. I knew this day would come. But Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? How? That's what we always want to know. How? I mean, how is this, how is this possible? I'm an old man and my wife, my wife, well, she's well along in years. Just in case some pesky medical doctor is gonna transcribe this conversation later and print it for public eyes, she's just well along, but not old. For a man of great faith, it seems like he has quite a bit of doubt. Great faith, but how can I know? Great faith, but how can I be sure? Someone said, even the faithful grow dull in their expectations. At times finding themselves unprepared for God to answer their prayers. I'm old, my wife's old, how can I know? And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. This is a wordplay in the original language and I love this. I love a witty, sarcastic angel, that's the best kind. He says, I am old, how can I know? And almost in the same phrase, Gabriel says, how can you know? I am Gabriel. Dude, you're talking to an angel. That's how, follow the context clues. You're talking to an angel. Your robe is wet. You are terrified. This is how you can know. God sent me. God sent me to tell you some good news. And I'm telling you, I don't, I don't appreciate you messing up this moment for me. I don't wanna, I'm not insulting God. God does what he does, but it's been boring for the last four or 500 years. And when he looks at you and says, I got something for you to do, you're like, ka-ching. So I'm down here and you're kind of messing my moment up, Zachariah. Can you just catch up? Don't say, how can I know? You're talking to an angel. And then the angel says, and now, You'll be silent and not able to speak until the days this happen, until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words. Zechariah, for the next nine months, you won't be able to say a word, which I hear was a great blessing to Elizabeth. (laughs) 
But every time you want to speak and can't, it will be a reminder to you that God can be trusted and his promises are sure. You'll be silent until John is born, and he was. But what the angel said next is why I am so glad we're all here today. Maybe it's why God has you here today. Which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah, what God has promised is as good as done. Every promise God makes, Zechariah, God keeps. At the right moment, in the right way, and for our good, God will do what he's promised to do in the way he wants to do it. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers were answered, but let's just get honest. Let's put all the cards on the table. How Zechariah and Elizabeth's story ends is not how everybody's story ends. Not everybody has their greatest unanswered prayer answered in the way they want it answered. God didn't answer their prayers because of how good they were or the amount of right things that they did or the amount of their faith. God answered their prayers because it was in the purposes and the will of God to do so. That's why God answered their prayers. That's why God chooses to answer our prayers. John is gonna prepare the world for the coming of God's son, the Messiah. And so here's some truth I just wanna leave us with. God loves you too much to answer all your prayers. And God loves you too much to break any of his promises. And if we can hold on to that, if we can live with that type of faith and that type of hope, that God loves you too much to answer all of your prayers. Can you imagine if God just answered every single prayer the way that we wanted him to answer all of those prayers? God loves you too much, just like you love your children too much to give them everything they ask for. You know it's not in their benefit what they're asking for. They don't know that. They can't see that. They don't believe that. But if you fathers and mothers being human understand that about your children, how much more does God understand that about his children? God loves us too much to give us everything we ask for, but God loves us too much to break any of his promises. God doesn't always answer our prayers, but he always keeps his promises. This is a new way of thinking for many of us. This is a new perspective of faith and a new perspective of hope. God doesn't answer all of our prayers, but he does keep all of his promises. You fast forward a few years, John begins to preach as eccentric as he was. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's baptizing people in the river Jordan. One day his cousin, Jesus, shows up and he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he introduces Jesus, the Messiah to the world. And then he baptizes him. And in that moment, a dove descends and a voice is heard from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And John, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, his message became, I have seen and I testify that this man is the son of God. And John, as he records what happened next, is something we wouldn't expect. He says he came to his own people 
and even they rejected him. God had answered Israel's prayer. God had answered their prayer, but they couldn't see it. They refused to see it because their expectations of how they thought God would answer their prayers blinded them to the answer to all their prayers. They expected a lion, but they got a lamb. They expected a man to show up and wear a cross, to wear a crown, but not a cross. They expected a conqueror, not a carpenter. Someone riding a stallion, not on the back of a donkey. When God answered their prayer, it didn't fit into their box of expectations. When God answered their prayer and kept his promise, they couldn't see it. What if? What if God has answered some prayers in your life? What if God has kept some promises in your life? But because it didn't fit into your box of expectations of what you thought it was going to look like, what do you thought it was going to be like, what you thought it was going to feel like, you're blind to it. And you've yet to receive it. That God has answered a prayer and he's kept his promise. But it's not the way you thought it would be. Your expectations were so detailed and so elaborate that it's blinded you to those areas where God has showed up. He has answered your prayer. He has kept his promise. But you just can't see it. Don't mistake an unmet expectation with an unmet, with an unanswered prayer. Don't confuse your unmet expectation with an unanswered prayer. Just because it's not the way you expected, it doesn't mean that God didn't answer your prayer. It just may mean that God didn't answer it the way you thought he was gonna answer it. Philip Yancey, he said this, he said, if our sole focus is only on unanswered prayer, our faith will be shaken and even threaten because we will not always understand the timetable of God. It is the companionship of God that will carry us through as we cling to who we know God to be, not what we expect or think he should do. If your faith is hinging on an answered prayer, then every time an, un an answered prayer doesn't come the way you expect it, you'll lose a little piece of your faith. Our lives of faith have to be anchored to God himself, not to answer prayer. Some of us have been praying. We've been looking for the promise. But in some places of our lives, not all of them, but in some places, God has already shown up. And he's answered that prayer. And he's kept a promise. We just can't see it yet. And if you're here and life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would at this point, and you find yourself a little discouraged, disillusioned, angry, resentful. Don't forget something. Don't forget something really important. When things have not turned out the way that you have wanted them to, know this, that in real time, you often can't see what, is, what God is protecting you from, preparing you for, and providing you with.
in the moment, in the moment of your life right now, you often can't see in real time what God is protecting you from. You think it should be this way, but God is protecting you from something. You want it to be like that, but God is preparing you for something even better than what you're asking for. And God is providing you with something valuable and necessary in this moment, in this season, but you can't see it in real time. So don't be frustrated and don't be resentful and don't be angry. Take heart. God may not live up to your expectations, but he will always live up to his promises. Right now, life may be dark. You may be in a season of disappointment, but you can know and you can know and you can know that God is moving and God is working and he's actively maneuvering to keep his promises to you. Every single one of them. He's at work in the disappointment. He's using it to strengthen you, to better you, to perfect you, to sharpen you, mature you. God is working in the midst of your unanswered prayer and your unmet expectations. Somehow God is using it all for your good. Even though you can't see it. So when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When you can't see what he's up to, trust in who you know him to be, a father who loves you. It doesn't always turn out the way we expected, but it will turn out exactly the way God promised it would. So in this season, when the lights have gone out, it seems like prayers have been forgotten. Don't lose heart. Every promise God makes, God keeps. You can rest on that. You can trust in that, that God has not forgotten his promises. And God has certainly not forgotten he is with you, he is for you, and he's working on your behalf to bring all of his promises to pass for your good and his glory. Heavenly Father, let us receive this in faith and in hope that you have not forgotten your promises, you've not forgotten your people. God, help us not to confuse unmet expectations with unanswered prayers. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you have shown up and you answered the prayer. You kept the promise, we just couldn't see it. You were protecting us from something. You were preparing us for something. You were providing us with something. You were there in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the storm. And there's not been a moment of our lives that you've not been there working in your providence and in your sovereignty to bring every word to pass at their appointed time. Let us have that type of faith, that type of hope. In Jesus' name, and everybody everywhere said,